Acts chapter 3, verse 18 says, But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that His Christ would suffer, He has thus fulfilled. In verse 24 says, And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after Him also proclaimed these days. Let's pray. Well, Father, we're thankful that we're here, Lord. We're thankful for the the blessings that have been ours already, Lord, from the, from the teachings, Lord. We thank You for reminding us of the dangers of unbelief, Lord. Please have mercy on us, Lord. Far be it from us, Lord, who have the greater Moses to to turn away in unbelief as the people of Israel did. And Father, we're thankful for the reminder of the necessity of salvation, Lord, that that to remain dead in our sins is is not an option, Lord. Who would who would give the whole who would want to gain the whole world and lose their own soul? Lord, we thank you even for the songs that we sang, Lord, we thank You for Your providence in letting the last song be to show us Christ because that's what I attempt to do today is to see Christ in all of the Bible. pray that You would bless this lesson, Lord. I pray that You would bless our study of Your Word, Lord. We need the Spirit of God to help us to understand it. We need the Spirit of God to help us believe it, and we need the Spirit of God to keep us in the faith. And so we pray that blessing on our church, Lord. Save any who have yet to come to Christ, Lord. Open yourself up to them from your word, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So, as I said, the game plan for today is to really expound further upon something that I just got to mention in the last time we were in Acts chapter 3. We're going to take a more in-depth look into this hermeneutic, this way of understanding the Bible that the Apostle Peter alluded to multiple times in the book of Acts in those passages that I read from Acts chapter 3. Peter mentioned how all of the prophets pointed us to this Christ, and today we're actually going to look and spend our time at the way that Jesus likewise taught this same principle, this same hermeneutic, this same way in which we are to be looking at the Scriptures. And of course, when Peter's addressing the Scriptures in the book of Acts chapter 3, when Jesus is addressing the Scriptures in the Gospels, they're referring to the old, what we refer to as the Old Testament Scriptures. It was the only scriptures in existence at the time. So we're going to be seeing how it is more fully than we looked at last time, how Jesus is in fact to be found in all of the scriptures. So we're going to turn again to Luke chapter 24. I I, I know I read the text last time when I was with you. Hopefully some of this isn't too repetitive for you who were here, but For those who weren't here, 
and these are good reminders because when you're talking about when you're talking about developing your hermeneutic, when you're talking about developing the way that you understand the scriptures, this is one of those things that I think is so important because it's just a foundational truth, kind of like I wanted to talk about the canon, like it's a very foundational thing to understand that we have the Bible or what is the Bible. Um, in the same way, now that we know what is the Bible, the next question we want to ask um, is, well, what is the Bible really talking about? What is the overall message of the Bible? And the overall message of the Bible is the person and work of Jesus Christ. So Peter's told us that. Today we're going to look at the, the instances where Jesus tells us that same thing, that all of the Bible is about Him. So Luke chapter 24 uh, here we have this famous passage. I'm going to start in verse 21. This is that famous passage. That your Bible probably puts a little heading, a little title saying uh, the road to Emmaus where we come upon these distraught disciples. Um, they, they're wondering what has happened. Why, why did our Messiah die? And they're on a trip to a town called Emmaus in as we look at this, I want to hone in really on one thing that Jesus really drives home with these disciples who have kind of lost hope. Um, they thought Jesus was going to, was going to do um, a whole lot more. They thought Jesus was going to do a whole lot different things with his ministry there in Israel. And so at this point, Jesus is the unrecognized Jesus. Jesus has hidden himself from these disciples so far, but he comes upon them on their journey and, and explain some things to them. He's going to teach some things to them. And so let's just look at this account here. Luke chapter 24, beginning in verse 21, it says, this is the, the, the men's explanation. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it's now the third day since these things happen. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the woman had said, but him they did not see. All that's the context here for verse 25. This is what I really want us to get into kind of feel so that we don't make the same mistakes that these distraught disciples were making. Verse 25, And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And so here we have Jesus hearing of all their knowledge of what had taken place in Israel, in Jerusalem in particular, and still seeing their disbelief and their confusion, he gives them a really incredibly sharp rebuke with this language that he, he gives to them. It's something that we don't want to have the Lord give to us. He calls them foolish men, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. And Jesus' rebuke, as we see here, is, is because these men don't understand what has taken place through the work of the Messiah. They don't understand that all of their scriptures were saying this was going to happen. They missed it. They missed that all the Old Testament prophets 
said that Jesus was going to die, that he was going to rise again from the dead. And this is an error of such a magnitude of the Lord. The Lord is recognizing this as such a serious error of biblical hermeneutics that he uses this, this strong language. He's indicting them for not seeing not only him, but his work in the Old Testament. What's similarly striking in this language that Jesus uses in calling them foolish is in Titus chapter 3, verse 3, the Apostle Paul there uses that same word, that same Greek term, to describe um, like what Jason was talking about earlier. Uh, this is the state of man. This word, this foolishness, is the state of man in unbelief, pre-conversion. Uh, this is the state that we were in when we were unsaved and unregenerate. The Apostle Paul uses that same word. And so this, this is a serious accusation that the Lord has brought to these men for their lack of discernment with the word. So um, what exactly were these guys missing? Where had they gone wrong uh, that would cause Jesus to go so far as to use this word, this strong word of foolish um, because if you notice, Jesus doesn't rebuke these guys for failing to believe uh, the eyewitnesses that appeared to them, that told them uh, all these evidences about the empty tomb, the women's visions of the angels. No, Jesus' rebuke isn't because they didn't believe all the things, all the evidences in, in the miraculous that, that they have known about. Jesus' rebuke to them is for not believing the Scriptures themselves. And it's the Scriptures that are the ultimate standard of truth. This is why He calls them foolish. They haven't understood the Scriptures. They haven't understood that the Scriptures were speaking of a suffering Messiah. A suffering Messiah that would, that would not undergo decay. Um, so I so really I kind of start off with this rebuke of Jesus just to kind of get your attention to if this is the way that Jesus views this error, we likewise don't want to be found having the same error and missing what all of the Old Testament is about. We want to uh, just like we, we saw in Hebrews, we want to take the errors of others and learn from them just as we need to learn from the people of Israel who fell in the wilderness, so we need to learn from these disciples who didn't understand uh, the, their Old Testament. So, as I said, um, your biblical hermeneutic is important to, 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 to have a, a science of how to understand your Bible. This is, this is very foundational. Um, if you don't have the right presuppositions when you come to the text, you can come away with things that God isn't intending for you to get from the text. We also, we, we, I think we often, you know, we see false religions, we see cults, we see even just other denominations who have interpretations of the Bible that we think, wow, that's, how did they get there? Why do they think the Bible set, teaches this when it so clearly doesn't? A lot of the times when you look into those errors and listen to the reasoning of the people who are in error, a lot of times the problem comes down to it's, it's their hermeneutic. It's, the, it's this, this overriding principle that they're, 
that they, that they believe the Bible teaches that leads them to misinterpret certain verses. So your hermeneutic is important for understanding all of the Bible. So Luke chapter 24, it's a famous passage for this reality is that Jesus is, is setting forth a proper hermeneutic for the reading of the Old Testament. If you look there in verse 27 as well, Jesus uses again, just as Peter's kind of repetitive in, in describing the Old Testament as serving this purpose. So there in verse 27, the same thing from Moses to all the prophets, he said, these are written about him. So you might be asking yourself, you know, if you were to put yourself in these disciples' shoes or sandals, if you put yourself in the sandals of the disciples, should these disciples really have been expected to understand all these things from their Old Testament? Uh, maybe you've read your Old Testament multiple times and you've got discouraged, you've, you've been through there and you just don't understand why, why there's so much text devoted to genealogies or why there's so much text devoted to sacrifice or why there's so much text devoted to this people group, this this people of Israel, and you've kind of, you know, come at an end uh, to, w- to what this is all about. Um, this is why I want to spend time with this so that you can have the overriding principle that you need to have when you come to your Old Testament is that in many different ways, in various ways, the Old Testament is pointing you as kind of like the way that Paul says it in Galatians, in Galatians chapter 3, that the law, they're speaking broadly. I don't know that he's speaking just of the Ten Commandments, but a lot of times the law just uh, speaks of Old Covenant. The Old Covenant is a tutor to lead you to Christ. It does that in many different ways, um, but that is in fact what we should be getting from the Old Testament. So, Despite the fact that, that, that I grant you it is a, a tall task to properly understand just how all the Old Testament does this, I think the best place to start, or the, the necessary place to start, is with just agreeing with Peter, agreeing with Jesus that this is in fact what you should be trying to get out of your Old Testament, is you need to be, as the song says, we need to be seeing Christ. So that's, that's kind of my hope and goal for where we're starting here is just to just to at least convince you of that as far as working out all the details as far as every page of Zechariah you know how that is to point us to Christ well there's a lot of work to be done there um, and hopefully in the future we can do some of that groundwork but I'm just trying to convince you that this is in fact uh, what we should be doing Um, Jesus, you know, we see Jesus rebuking these guys and we kind of feel sorry for these guys. Kind of like Kinsey was saying with the people of Israel, it's like, I kind of get it. You know, they're out in the desert for three days. Like, I kind of get why they might stumble, why they might be complaining. Um, Same with these guys. We're kind of like, well, their Messiah, their king was killed. And nobody, I mean, nobody has seen him. Uh, We haven't seen him, at least they're thinking. And so they get distraught. We can kind of relate to them. But Jesus has always had a very high standard, a very high expectation for people understanding the Old Testament scriptures. And I'm thinking of the example of Nicodemus. If you remember from John chapter 3, 
where there Nicodemus is a teacher of the law. And Jesus there um, speaks with like this surprise that Nicodemus doesn't understand some very basic things that Jesus is saying should have been seen in the Old Testament. He's surprised that Nicodemus doesn't understand regeneration, that, that Nicodemus doesn't understand that the Spirit of God can save whomever he wishes. Uh, Jesus gives Nicodemus a very humbling rep- reply when he responds to him in John chapter 3, verse 10. He says, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? See, Jesus has uh, a high expectation for how we are to understand the Word of God. And I would say especially, especially maybe us, you see the way he speaks to Nicodemus. Nicodemus had much and was required of much. Uh, in the same way, brothers and sisters, I, I think um, at this church in particular, we're blessed in a sense more than many other churches. Uh, the Word of God is very much with us. Right, the, the, the Word of God is, our sermons sometimes are 50 minutes to an hour. Um, again, I forgot to start my clock, so don't raise your hand if, if necessary. But, I mean, a lot of churches have 15-minute, 20-minute little sermonettes and with very little Bible in them. And so the people of God really don't have a lot to work with. Um, you could kind of understand why a lot of these other churches misunderstand the Bible or get certain things wrong because they're really just not... Um, given the Word of God like we are. So I think, and, that, and that's a blessing, but with that blessing comes the expectation that, that we're going to do the work, that we're going to do the study to understand all of this blessing that's been given to us. So let's continue here um, in my attempt to convince you of this, this reason for the Old Testament. Let's turn now to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. couple of extensive points here from Jesus himself again. In John chapter 5, we, we find Jesus teaching the same thing here, the same thing that he was saying on the road to Emmaus, namely that the Old Testament scriptures are about him. Now, the Jews that Jesus is speaking here uh, two in John chapter 5. It's a little different situation. He's not speaking to disciples who are stumbling. He's speaking uh, not even to people who are just a little skeptical, uh, skeptical about who he is, but he's actually speaking to people who want to kill him. That's the context here in John chapter 5. If you look here in verse 18, it says, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal to God. So the context of these, these verses we're about to look at in John chapter 5 is a little different than Luke 24. Here Jesus is seeking to defend his, his unique and his equal status to the Father with these Jews he's debating And we see here, as Jesus is appealing for who he is with these guys he's debating, he makes a couple of, uh, he brings up a couple points. He he appeals to a couple 
different witnesses to appeal to who he is. If you see there in verse 33, verse 35, you'll notice that he appeals to the witness of John the Baptist. John the Baptist certainly attested to who Jesus was. Uh, If you think back to how John the Baptist argued for who Jesus was, he appeals to Old Testament scriptures. Uh, In John chapter 1, when John the Baptist is kind of asked about his ministry, asked who he is, he says, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, preparing the way for the Lord, preparing the way for Yahweh. Uh, That's a quote from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. In verse 36, Jesus makes another appeal to here he argues for his Messiahship, for the reality of who he is by appealing to the great signs and wonders, the miracles, the great works that he does. And he makes that appeal to, at the time, the doubting John the Baptist. In Matthew chapter 11, he lists off all these things that he's done, the blind receiving sight, the lame have been walking. It's just interesting as you read through this whole list and you still think, wow, like they're still wondering, they're still unbelief, unbelief. The blind received sight, the lame were walking, lepers have been cleansed, the deaf have been made to hear, the dead have been raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. All of these sufficient proofs, the reason they're sufficient proofs isn't just because Jesus could do miraculous things and do amazing things. The proof is that this is what the Old Testament said that the Messiah would do. Uh, The reason that is a valid testimony is because this is what the Old Testament said, particularly all those things that I just read off, are in the book of Isaiah. Now, lastly, in verse 37 here, Jesus appeals to the testimony of God the Father. The testimony of God the Father. This is the means, and the means by which God has testified of Jesus. That's what I want us to look at here, John 5.37. How does the God the Father attest to Jesus? Verse 37 says, And the Father who sent me has borne witness about me, but his voice you have never heard, and his form you have never seen. So the question is, how is Jesus appealing to the Father attesting to the Son and then saying, but you've never seen Him or you've never heard Him. So, where would these Jews have heard? Where would these Jews have seen this testimony from the Father about Jesus that Jesus is referring to here? Because I doubt many of these Pharisees, many of these combatant Jews uh, happened to be at Jesus' baptism where in fact the, the voice of God was heard. We'll look at the next verse, John 5.38. Jesus says here, How would these Jews have been attested by God the Father about Jesus? John 5.38, he says, And you do not have His Word abiding in you. You don't have His Word abiding in you, for you do not believe the One whom He has sent. So that's the answer from Jesus. They should have seen him. They should have known about him. They had the testimony from God the Father about him in God's word, in their Bibles, in the Old Testament. Now, what's interesting about this with these Jews, these Jews that Jesus is arguing with, and what's kind of amazing about Jesus' accusation here that they don't have the word of God in them, 
in abiding in them is that these Jews are famous. The, the Pharisees in particular, the scribes, the Sadducees, all of these guys were famous for knowing the Word of God, memorizing the Word of God. I mean, to the jot and tittle, these guys were attempting to keep every single thing, every single part of the law of God that was written in there. And so from Genesis 1 to Malachi 4, these guys were attempting to gain the favor of God by doing every single thing that the Scripture said. They were no slackers with the Word of God. And then John 5.39, Jesus admits this. He says, you search the Scriptures. So Jesus admits that they do this work of searching their Bibles. He says, because you think that in them you have eternal life. So these Jews desperately search the Scriptures in in, an attempt to gain their justification, in an attempt to be uh, law keepers so that they could have favor with God. But these scriptures weren't testifying to a system of works righteousness. The scriptures were not testifying to how one could be made right by keeping the law. He says in verse 39 what the scriptures are about. Jesus says, it is they that bear witness about me. The scriptures that these Jews knew by heart are bearing witness of Jesus, and they missed that. They missed what all of they missed the point of their Bibles. John the Baptist had testified of Jesus, testified of the miracles that Jesus performed. Jesus' miracles testified of him. The Father had ultimately been testifying of his son since the very beginning of time through the Word of God. It is these that Jesus says. The Scriptures, without qualification, it's these that testify of Jesus. And I think an important point is to notice that Jesus didn't say that in the Scriptures there's simply an obscure prophecy here or a certain prophecy there that talks about me. He speaks in this overarching language from the very beginning, from the writings of Moses From the very beginning, the sum of these books are written about me. Now, I inserted a couple of uh, quotes here. I'm going to read off a couple quotes. These are a couple of my favorite biblical commentators. Um, William Hendrickson's commentary set. It's the New Testament set. It's the big red set. I'm going to read off what he says. And then another guy, hopefully you guys are familiar with D.A. Carson. He also has a commentary on the book of John. Let me just read off what these guys say about this text in John chapter 5. William Hendrickson. This same truth, the Christ in all the Scriptures, which unlocks the mysteries of the Old Testament as well as the New, and apart from which the Bible remains a closed book. William Hendrickson says, unless you see Christ in all the scriptures, the Bible remains a closed book to you. Like you don't have the key, in other words, to open up the book. D.A. Carson, uh, with a much more, as he's prone to do, a much more scholarly explanation of the matter, this is what he says. What is at stake is a comprehensive hermeneutical key 
by predictive prophecy, by type, by revelatory event, by anticipatory statutes, what we call the Old Testament is understood to point to Christ, His ministry, His teachings, His death and resurrection. What these two scholars are saying is the same thing that Peter said, the same thing that Jesus said, that Jesus is making clear to these Jews, that in order to understand the meaning of the Old Testament Scriptures, one must be seeing Christ. That Christ is the key to unlocking the Bible. Everything God's been doing with the people of Israel since the beginning chapters of Genesis finds its purpose and its fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, D.A. Carson, in that quote I read to you from him, he lists off some of the different ways. And maybe this is some of the things you're wondering, like, well, how is Jesus in all, how is all the Old Testament about Jesus? Well, D.A. Carson listed off some of the ways. He says through prophecies. I think that's the one we're all probably most familiar with, you know, the Isaiah 53s, the Psalm 22s. Genesis 3.15, these famous prophecies explicitly talking about this Messiah to come. Uh, We're all familiar with those. But there's many, many other ways in which the Bible speaks and points to Jesus. So he said prophecies. He said types, the, the types and shadows. He says even events. That may be a trippy one. Uh, how are events that occur? I was just thinking off the top of my mind, how Peter describes the event of the flood and the salvation that the ark provides, how that's a picture of Christ. You have the exodus from Egypt and the great salvation that God brought through this mediator, right? But, so all of those are types. All of those are, 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 or those are events that are typological of greater realities that are going to come. There's going to be a greater mediator than, than Moses. Um, there's going to be a greater salvation than being trapped in a boat for a lot of days. Uh, Those are pictures of greater realities to come. And then he says, even even in the Old Covenant laws, even in the laws point us to Christ. The laws point us to our need for Christ, how we can't keep the laws and we need a Savior. The law contains the sacrificial systems that point us to the need for the shedding of blood. The laws contain principles of, of, of Sabbath rest. We need rest from our work. Rest from our work that's ultimately found in Christ. And so, all of those are, I believe, very true and right ways that we're to see Christ in the Old Testament. And so, on this point, on, on the details of how to find Christ in the Old Testament, I was going to recommend a book to you um, Kinsey knows this book. I gave Kinsey a copy of this book. To me, it's the best treatment of, of the working out of this principle. It's called Jesus on Every Page is the name of the book. It's by a guy named David Murray. And that's what he's doing. This book is, is dedicated. It's not, even, it's not even a large book. He's just kind of setting forth the different ways in which the Bible points us to Christ and he gives you, you know, some, some, some real obvious uh, examples of how that works. A lot of New Testament examples uh, pointing us to how that, 
how the apostles interpreted their Old Testaments pointing to Christ. But uh, Jesus on every page, I think, to me, that's the most helpful. It's, it's not even like a high scholarly tome or anything. It's written at a definitely understandable level that will just benefit you. You'll read through that, you'll be like, wow, I, I never realized that's why these things were in the Bible at all, but they really were pointing us to the Savior to come. And so, I don't know, maybe, uh, maybe we can talk Tafik into like maybe the men's, next men's book or something maybe, or do like a Monday night study through that book. I think that's a very, very helpful book. But even if you don't purchase that book, maybe the, the best way, I said this book by this guy is the best way, maybe the best way to maybe be convinced of this hermeneutic and the most helpful way to get the purest examples of how this is true is, is just to go through the Gospels. Go through the Gospels in your Bible. And it's even better if you have, like my ESV does and, and the NASB does, hopefully your Bible uh, distinguishes the Old Testament quotes in it. Um, a lot of Bibles do that. Like they'll, they'll indent Old Testament quotes or they'll italicize them somehow so that when you're reading through the Gospels and they're quoting the Old Testament, you can tell that that's an Old Testament quote. It's helpful when the Bibles do little things like that. So if your Bible does that, just flip through, just do a quick study, just flip through the Gospels and see how the apostles, how Jesus quote the Old Testament and how they're making arguments for Jesus being the Son of God, Jesus being the Messiah from the Old Testament. And a lot of those texts that they pull out from the Old Testament aren't obvious text that if you're just reading through your Old Testament, you're going to say, oh, this is clearly a prophecy of the Messiah. They're going to be quoting very, what we would consider very obscure texts. Out of Egypt I called my son. This is an argument that Jesus is the Messiah. Um, right? But that, that just shows you that the, the, the redemption of, of Israel out of Egypt, when, when Egypt was called out, I mean, when uh, Israel was called out of Egypt and, and, and God uses the languages of out of Egypt, I called my son, that was a, that was a picture of God's ultimate son. And as Jesus, the same thing will happen to him. He'll go to Egypt and he'll be called out of there uh, once it's safe to come back to Israel. So that's a helpful exercise. Just go through your, your Bible and, and look at the ways that the uh, New Testament authors quote the Old Testament and you will be surprised that uh, that not only do they, in fact, use this um, hermeneutic in arguing for Jesus, but um, you'll be surprised in some of the ways that they, that they do that. Now, I think those two things that I said to maybe have a helpful resource like um, the book that I named, Jesus on Every Page, go through the, the Bible itself and see how the apostles did that. That's very helpful groundwork because... There's definitely a lot of ways in which you can do this wrong. There's definitely a lot of ways in which you can find Jesus in the Old Testament and, and it be maybe a stretch or just be not what God intended by what you think you're finding there. So it's good to have the parameters to, to work with. Um, throughout church history, people have done this wrong. Like Origen, a an old church father, was famous for doing this wrong. He was famous for taking an allegorical approach to the Bible where seemingly everything in the Old Testament 
particularly was, was really just telling some other kind of story other than what the historical actual things that were going on. He, he, was, he was famous for this allegorical interpretation of the scripture. What's interesting about the way God did this is not only did all the things in the Old Testament historically actually happen as they're saying, uh, but, but the instruction from God was actually relevant for the people of Israel these things were actually had their historical realities. So all that was real and right and good, and you can read the Bible to get even that surface-level purpose out of it, but God actually had a greater purpose behind all those events, behind all those stories, behind all that instruction, and that is, that is to point us to Christ. Um, so another interesting, I'd say this is kind of like a, the, the practical application Maybe one of the applications that flows out of this reality is that there has always been one way of salvation. All of the scriptures are about Christ, about the gospel. Uh, So since the beginning, there's been one way of salvation. It, It isn't like the people of Israel were saved a different way than we are saved. When Jesus says in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the, uh, to the Father but through me. That statement didn't just come true whenever Jesus said those words. Jesus has always only been the only way to the Father. No one's ever been saved by any other means than by putting their faith in the coming seed of the woman. No one's ever been saved other than trusting in God's anointed one to come, the servant of God that was to come, the greater prophet that was to come, the Messiah. They must have been looking for the Messiah. And so Old Testament saints looked forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. We look back upon the work of Jesus Christ, but we're all, since the beginning of time, looking to Christ. Now, the Jews of Jesus' day here that Jesus had been talking to had so put their hope in a mediator, they'd so put their hope in the mediation of Moses and in his writings that here in John chapter 5, if you're still there, in verse 45, Jesus is going to set the record straight for them, seemingly once for all, to make sure that they don't miss his point. John five forty-five, he says to them, Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And so, what does Jesus mean by this statement? Well, surely he doesn't mean that on Judgment Day, Moses will be on the throne judging uh, these, these, these people. But what he means is that the writings of Moses from Genesis to Deuteronomy... These are actually the writings that are going to stand in accusation against these Jews who thought that these very writings is how they had eternal life. They're going to be judged and found guilty. Why? Because they haven't grasped the true meaning of the Scriptures. They didn't really believe what the Scriptures were written about. And so, in verse 46, Jesus once again repeats, For if you had believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses wrote of Jesus. 
That's amazing. That's amazing. Straight off the lips of the Lord Himself, Jesus again makes it very clear that the Old Testament writings are about Him. So I know we've had discussions amongst the brethren. I'm sure the ladies have too. Um, theologians, pastors, they, there's these ongoing debates and discussions about you know, all these different frameworks by which you interpret the Bible. You, know, you have a dispensational framework with, with which you view the Bible, or you have a covenantal viewpoint of the Bible and these overriding hermeneutics of how you understand the Bible. And a lot of those categories can be helpful. There's definitely a place for these different categories in trying to see in which the way God works throughout history and throughout redemptive history. But my argument is that your main overriding hermeneutic is to be Christ. If you can fit these other subcategories in somehow and it helps you make things a little more clear for you and understandable, I'm all for that. But really, the, the overriding hermeneutic that the apostles, that, and we're going to see even throughout Acts, it's interesting how often this, this point gets made throughout the book of Acts as the apostles are speaking. Jesus makes this point is that all the scriptures, in short, are about him. So Peter said it, Jesus has said it, um, and the good news for us is that the Old Testament's a big part of your Bible, right? There's a lot of words, there's a lot of scripture in the Old Testament Bible. Um, sometimes I think we get settled, we get comfortable with our understanding of scripture and what is there for us, but none of us have plumbed the depths of all of the Word of God to really get all of the ways in which God has been pointing us to Christ. So really, there's no excuse not to study the Word. There's not any excuse to not be studying your Bible. We haven't come to the end of the Word of God. Um, there's always something more for us to gain there, some, some mysteries that are there for us to unlock, uh, some wonders for us to be like, wow, there is Christ again. I, I've read that text a million times. I never realized God was speaking to us even, even, even there. So in one sense, that's just an encouragement. Another uh, reason for you to open up your Bible and study it is to try to find, and it's our privilege to find the Savior in our Bibles, is it not? Spur- Spurgeon was famous for saying, Spur- Spurgeon is, is famous for having this hermeneutic in that no matter what text he was preaching, he would get to Christ. And he said something to the effect, it's a paraphrase, I, can't, I should have looked it up, I guess, but he says uh, that even if he's preaching a text and, and there's no way in which that text leads to Christ, he said he would make a way. Like, so Spurgeon was intent on getting to the Savior from whatever text he was in. Even if it didn't obviously to him have a way to get there, he was going to make a way and we appreciate it. Maybe that's one of the reasons we always talk. I was just telling Tafik the other day, we said something about Spurgeon. I'm like, this guy, like everything he says is like encouraging. Everything I've ever heard from Spurgeon is like, wow, that's, that's right. You know what I mean? Like, and, and this is probably why, because everything he said was bringing you to the Savior. That's where you find encouragement. That's where you're reminded of, oh, that's, that's where I find my peace. That's where I find my joy. And 
That's the secret. Like Spurgeon had found the secret. Like preach Christ all, no matter what, and the people of God are going to love it. Right? So, yeah. Spurgeon. Um, last text. Let's look at one more. John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Jesus is going to do it again. As you might have guessed. John chapter 8. Again, we find Jesus in another heated discussion with the Jews. He's still attempting here to reason with these men who have spent their lives scouring over the Word of God. They've treasured the Word of God. They've tried to to be right with God by, by keeping what the Bible says, by keeping the laws. Now, Jesus shows up. The Messiah shows up. They don't recognize Him. So, Let's begin reading here in verse 51. Verse 51. This is kind of going to be the context again for this discussion. Verse 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Now, these Jews are still unable here. They're still unable to understand how in the world Jesus could be speaking to them as if he's somewhere, somehow greater than Abraham, their father. Verse 56, the bombshell from Jesus. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now this is very perplexing to these Jews. They didn't understand how Jesus could be saying that Abraham is aware of him all the way back in the book of Jesus. And these Jews are not afraid to readily voice their confusion, their disbelief. Look in verse 57, they respond to Jesus, You are not yet 50 years old, and you've seen Abraham? They don't understand, they can't imagine how Abraham and Jesus could have any sort of knowledge of each other, any sort of relationship, and maybe you're wondering the same thing. How in the world did Abraham know about Jesus? Well, Jesus is going to answer this question in in dramatic form. But again, I wanted to remind us of what I think is just such an important text. We, We did look at it last time. You don't even have to turn there, but just Paul's words, that the light that shed that shed by the Apostle Paul on this scenario with Abraham. I read it last time, Galatians chapter three. Maybe I'll just read it to you. Galatians chapter three. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those 
who are of faith, who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The gospel was preached to Abraham. And the gospel is about whom? The gospel is, of course, about Jesus Christ. And so how is it that Abraham had the gospel preached to him? Well, Abraham understood that these covenantal promises, that these words, these prophecies, when God had said to him that in him and in his seed and his offspring all the nations would be blessed, Abraham had the grace And I think it would take the grace of God. Some of these things seem obscure to us, but Abraham had the grace to understand, as Paul says in Galatians 3.16, that it was not referring to offsprings plural when God said that in your offspring all the nations will be blessed, but in your offspring singular, referring to the Christ. And so Abraham understood that this gospel promise given to him would find his fulfillment not in his descendants in general, but through his descendants in general, one in particular would come that would bless the nations with salvation. And you could also see, I tried to search this out on my drive here, um, but there was also, if you remember, previous revelation. It's not like this is the first time God's promised the Messiah I mean, these promises are to Abraham in Genesis 12. From the very first pages of your Bible, God already promised uh, Abraham's great-great-grandfather Adam and his great-great-grandmother Eve that through their seed, one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. Uh, A lot of commentators believe that when Eve had Seth, that she thought maybe Seth was the one that you've given me a man-child, like maybe this is the one who's going to overcome the sin that has already come into the world. Uh, If you look at Noah's father, what was Noah's father's name? Anybody know? I can't remember. Yeah, Noah's father, when Noah was being born, he said something very interesting Uh, Noah was obviously in his mother's womb and his father said, may this be the one who's going to give us rest from our works. What what in the world could he have possibly meant at that time in redemptive history that early? Lamech, yeah. Yeah. Maybe this is the one who's going to give us rest. Interesting language so early on in the Bible and you may think it's kind of far-fetched, like, well, did Abraham know, you know, any of these believers? Did Abraham have any of this revelation written down to him from God? Well, another interesting study, and uh, some of you are familiar with, like, Answers in Genesis, and you can find this stuff elsewhere, but something that's very interesting is the overlap of these patriarchs' lives together, like, Abraham, I think, was only maybe one generation from Adam. In other words, like Adam lived so long that when Abraham was born, Adam had barely been dead. I can't remember the the dates for that, but it's just crazy to think about how long 
uh, some of these prophets, some of these people who God had spoken to remained. It's not like they wouldn't have been telling of these promises that God would have given to them. It's not like people didn't know that God had promised a seed. So I just had a little note there. There was previous revelation. Uh, Abraham didn't only have the word of God to him. The people of God already knew of these promises, the, the promises of the seed to come, the promise of the Messiah. So very possible that Abraham had some insight and some influence from previous revelation. So back to John 8. Back to John 8. It's because of all this good news that has been given all the way back as far as even Genesis 12 that Jesus is able to tell these Jews in John 8 that Abraham rejoiced to see his day. Abraham wasn't ignorant of Jesus' coming. God had promised to Abraham that this would happen. Now, verse 58, Jesus here is going to add insult to injury with these Jews. Uh, You don't want to debate Jesus. These guys thought they knew the Scriptures so well. Then verse 57, they're actually mocking Jesus for somehow thinking that He knows Abraham. Jesus tells them in verse 58, Jesus says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Before Abraham was, I am. Now, Jesus, in using these words, hopefully you're familiar with the fact that He's he's taking on the name. He's taking on the self-identification of the very God of the Old Testament, the very Lord, Yahweh, who appeared to Abraham at the Oaks of Mamre. God had frequently referred to Himself as the I Am, Exodus 3, Isaiah 43, multiple places throughout Isaiah, that God is the I Am. And so the Jews, and some people may think, well, I don't know if that's really that clear of a reference. I mean, ego eimi, these Greek terms are used other places. Maybe that's not, maybe Jesus isn't really claiming to be the I Am. But the Jews, who as Jesus admitted, do understand their Bibles, Somewhat, they at least understood this enough to know that Jesus was in fact claiming to be God because why? How do we know that they understood that Jesus was claiming to be God? Because they pick up stones to stone him for blasphemy. So they at least knew that much. They at least knew God's name. They at least knew what Jesus was claiming. And so if you think about all this as we come to a close here, It's safe to say that the entire Bible, the entire Old Testament is about God. That's an easier statement, right, than to say it's about Jesus. The Old Testament, the Bible is about God. In the beginning, God. So to say that you are God, to say you're the very I am, the God of the Old Testament, and taking into consideration the Bible's Trinitarian description of God, this is, in another sense, in in essence, saying the, the entire Bible's about you. If you are God... You are the God of the whole Bible. So, even in this direct claim to deity that Jesus is making here, from it, as we read about God, His interactions with man in our Old Testaments, we are of necessity reading about the Son as well, who is God Himself. Now, I had a question here. As God appears in the Old Testament to 
Abraham to Moses to others. Which member of the Godhead is it that's condescending in such a way so as to interact with mankind? I know it's kind of like one of these questions that maybe these debates that that come up. But for me, the the definitive text in answering this question, it's almost like John answers this question directly. In John chapter 1, verse 18, I'll just read it to you. It says there that no one has ever seen God, but the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. Very interesting text. No one has seen God, The only God who is at the Father's side has made Him known. So who is this God who is at the Father's side? Well, it's obviously none other than God the Son. God the Son makes God the Father known. He's the one who is appearing in His pre-incarnate state that's graciously interacting with fallen mankind. It's the Son who makes God known. It's the Son who took on flesh. It's the Son who reveals to us the Father. So, just to encourage you guys to take Jesus at His word here, to take Peter at His word, to just start there with with this understanding that all the Scriptures are about Christ, about His work of redemption. If you haven't kind of been exposed to this emphasis to this perspective before i pray that it would be your pleasure to seek out the savior in all the scriptures i pray that you would have a similar experience as those men on the road to emmaus where it says their hearts were burning within them as they heard these things they were encouraged at the reality of having christ revealed to them that maybe you'll have your own emmaus journey Uh, At my previous church, we actually did a conference called the Emmaus Conference. That's what we named it. And the whole conference was about just these things, how Jesus is in all of the scriptures. And so you can have your your own little Emmaus journey as you think about these things, as we as we work through these things, that your eyes will be opened to the Old Testament. And I pray that this will just be an encouragement, another reason to open up your Old Testament, to study it, to try to find the Savior. I know, unfortunately, we all need encouragement in studying our Bibles, unfortunately. So maybe this will just be another reason to crack open your Bible and and look for your Savior. Let's pray. Well, Father, You have provided... For all of our needs with this church, Lord, every time a need arises, you, you meet it for us and we thank you. We thank you for the brethren. Lord, we thank you for Greg and all his work at always making all these technical details happen that people who are sick and can't make it can be blessed and, and have at least some aspect of fellowship with us, Lord. We pray for the Cottmanels, Lord, that you would would, as was prayed earlier, just make this a quick, a quick sickness that they would pull out of it quickly and be brought back to us. Lord, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for telling us how it is that we are to read our Bibles, how it is that we are to understand them, Lord. We thank You that You haven't left us in the dark, Lord. We pray that You will help us with this, with this work, Lord. You're 
You've spoken a lot, Lord. Your Bible is big, Lord. There's much work to be done. I pray that You would give us grace as we try to seek our Savior in Your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.